Hiding Place by Dave Goddard Pracy Here's some pigeon, Mick. And Garrick spoke rapidly. Who been dat pella? Where him been prom? You been subby him? Him been talk punny way, eh? Him been cardia bloke. What? Mick shook his head quickly. I said, who's that man? Where is he from? Do you know him? Doesn't he talk in a strange way? He's a stranger in this place. It's 2017. Mick Wilson's wife has taken off from Adelaide with a long-haul truck driver and Mick's two little kids. In an attempt to find his family, Mick, a bricklayer and former top-level Australian rules footballer, blindly heads for Alice Springs. In central Australia, where many people go to hide from their past, Mick finds a different and challenging world. He stumbles into work on a remote cattle station with an Aboriginal community close by. He also finds three very different women who shape his destiny. Racial tensions, tangled personal relationships, a mysterious mountain range and a struggling Aboriginal community and football team force Mick to become part of a strange new world and way of being. Across a cultural divide, new understandings emerge in the most unlikely ways. Through it all, Mick searches and aches for his kids, but because of the people he comes to know, he's never alone. Contents Dedications and Acknowledgement Page Roman Numeral 7 Preface Page Roman Numeral 9 Part 1, April 2017 Page 1 Part 2, Page 25 Part 3, Page 55 Part 4, Page 75 Part 5, Page 103 Part 6, Page 128 Part 7, Page 177 Part 8, page 214. Part 9, page 269. Part 10, page 299. Part 11, page 321. Part 12, page 339. Epilogue, early November 2017, page 359. Credit, songs, page 361. Page Roman numeral 7, Dedications and Acknowledgement. To Karen, my gratitude for the love, support and shared pleasures over the years, for her tireless effort in respect of this book, and my acknowledgement of how lucky I've been. To the many Aboriginal language groups and individuals I've been privileged to meet, thanks for all the wit, wisdom and learning you've offered and your acceptance of me. To Ian, my appreciation for the patient guidance and the unlearning he motivated to shift my brain, mind and writing style from research formal to creative fiction. To Paul, Kim, Drew and Novak, who have shown me that what happens in life is because of what you cause and create, not because someone bequeaths something to you. To Ross McLennan of Book Covers Australia for the fascinating cover design. To Balboa Press, Jonah and Richelle for all the assistance so willingly and professionally offered. It's been great to have known you, one and all. Dave Goddard, 14th of January, 2013. Page Roman numeral 9. Preface. I set out to write a story that painted a positive view of remote Aboriginal communities and Aboriginal peoples. Much of my working life has been connected with such communities, and I have learned a great deal from the work, and even more, from the people. The genesis of Hiding Place arose in an evaluation I did on Australian rules football in remote communities. 
Two people, one non-Aboriginal and one Aboriginal, both commented on the similarities between Australian rules football and traditional Aboriginal law. I believe there is virtue in Aboriginal peoples preserving, nurturing and living by what is good and proper in their law and cultures. My rationale is simple. It provides their children with the opportunity to know where they've come from and what makes them who they are. White people have spent generations searching for a cure to the Aboriginal problem and so far haven't found it. Genocide, apartheid, assimilation and other concepts have been like prohibition. None has ever worked and none ever will. Perhaps allowing Aboriginal peoples to follow their ways of knowing and doing would be more beneficial. After all, they survived one of the harshest environments on earth, living by traditional law for 100,000 years or more before we came. They must have been doing a lot that was right. We should, as Mick the main character does, listen and learn, not preach and direct. At a more mundane level, I stress that this work is fiction. All characters are creations of my imagination. While the story is set in and around Alice Springs, and several place names will be familiar to people from the region, like the Tanami Track and Tilmouth Well, the names of the cattle stations and Aboriginal communities are fictional. Apart from the word Cardia, I have created fictional Aboriginal words for a fictional language that I call Wallamari. If I have inadvertently used a word that has meaning and in some way causes offence to any language group, I apologise. It was not my intention. I have also created a form of Aboriginal English which I call Pidgin. It really isn't Pidgin, but it serves the purpose of highlighting a different way of speaking. Again, apologies if anything offends. I don't claim that my explanations of or allusions to Aboriginal concepts in this story are accurate interpretations of how Aboriginal groups or individuals operate or live their lives. The interpretations, creations and ideas are mine, derived from experiences within cultures that I've been privileged to have contacted and come to know. If there are accuracies in them, then I pay tribute to the people, my teachers. If not, it's my fault and I take responsibility. Finally, the Australian rules football competition described in this story does not reflect the operations or structure of the Central Australian Football League, CAFL. The CAFL, supported by Northern Territory Australian Football League, AFLNT, Richmond Football Club and the AFL, is an effective and efficient body offering organisational and development support across a vast region. The AFL and another five of its clubs... Geelong, Hawthorne, Essendon, Port Power and Adelaide provide similar support to Richmond for remote Aboriginal communities in the Northern Territory and South Australia. The programme is a partnership between the AFL and the Department for Housing, Community Services and Indigenous Affairs, FAHCSIA. Dave Goddard. Page 1. Part 1. April 2017. 1. He'd parked the old combi in the red dirt, treeless parking bay beside mounds of soil. He needed to stretch his legs and try to wake up. The sign at the exit from the bay said, Marla Bore, 20 kilometres. He leaned against the side of the old blue combi, took off his filthy peak cap and lit a cigarette. It was late on the second day of the journey. The side rear vision mirror showed a dusty, haggard, red-eyed bloke with a face covered in stubble clothes and caps soaked with sweat and stained red and someone who hadn't washed for three days. But he didn't care. Who am I going to meet that would give a shit? He gazed at the country. 
It was as if a half-assed deity had dumped boulders and rock over a vast area, flattened them very quickly with a huge compactor, and left many mounds between which glittering white salt pans proliferated. No vegetation of any note was visible, as if the deity, after viewing the effect, had shrugged and buggered off. To Mick, the sight seemed to go on forever. He was two-thirds of the way to Alice Springs, with no real reason to go there, and no idea of where to go after that. His old combi had chugged along at 70 kilometres an hour since he'd left Adelaide at 5am yesterday. The first three hours had been through farmlands north of Adelaide, which he knew well. The coast of the Gulf of St Vincent and above Port Piri, Spencer's Gulf, were to his left, and to his right were hills that gradually rose in height to become the Flinders Ranges. After Port Augusta and the Flinders had faded behind him, all he'd seen was the now stony, treeless countryside. The temperature had risen steadily over the first day, causing him to stop several times to allow the engine to cool and to have a drink. Memories of his days fencing around Quorn and Wilmington and out onto the Eyre Peninsula had taught Mick to carry plenty of water, particularly when driving his decrepit combi. He guessed by midday that it was around 35 degrees. As the combi had no air conditioning, he'd shed his tracky top not long after leaving Port Augusta and had driven with the windows open. After 12 hours of nursing the vehicle on the first day, he pulled into a roadside stop just before Glendambo and slept on a mattress in the back. All he had to eat was some bread and cheese he'd grabbed from the fridge as he'd departed. As hot as it had been during the day, he found he needed all his clothes and whatever other covering he could find during the night as the temperature plummeted. He rose at five, shivering in the frosty air as the sky began to grow pink in the east. He stopped for breakfast at one of the two service stations that made up the town. Beyond Glendambo lay Coopapedi, which he reached about lunchtime, nursing the old wagon along at the same rate. He refuelled and bought a sandwich from a roadhouse. He didn't notice the unique nature of the place, much of it underground, as people had constructed dwellings, shops and even a hotel out of old opal diggings. All that filled his senses were events in his recent past and the flat, shimmering desolation of the present. Now, late afternoon on Thursday, he was close to Marla Bore. He stopped the cigarette and drove the last twenty kilometres. Marla sat to the right of the highway, a motel, a roadhouse, two houses and a yard filled with machinery. Just before the entrance to the roadhouse, a sign pointing to the right along a dusty track said, Udnadatta Track, Udnadatta 216 kilometres. But thankfully, the Marla Roadhouse and motel were surrounded by white gums, Many straggly, but a few flourishing. They were the first trees he could recall since Port Augusta. He stopped at the roadhouse. It had a bar and restaurant, beckoning him to have a drink and a decent feed. He noticed, however, as he walked into the place, two people he'd passed, and the waitress at the counter all gave him unpleasant looks. As he stood waiting for her to serve him, he understood why. He stank. He managed to wash standing in front of a sink in the men's toilet, changed his shirt and found a spare pair of underpants. When he returned, looking cleaner, cap off and longish blonde hair visible, the waitress even gave him a smile. As well as food, he found a rug in the roadhouse, which he bought because of his experiences the night before. Then he chugged out of Marla to a roadside stop to sleep. As he neared Alice Springs the next afternoon, Mick stared at the highway without seeing it. He knew he was close to Alice because the road signs told him so. 
but suddenly and spectacularly the countryside changed. Flatness gave way to high ranges as he neared the town. It was as if he were driving into an impenetrable barrier of rock that stretched as far as he could see east and west. But just past the airport, the scenery changed again. Seeming to loom over him were stark red hills with sheer cliffs near the summit, guarding the past like monuments carved from history. On one hill, the striations of rock were vertical, as if a huge hand had tilted the hill on its side and left it there. But between the hills was greenness, like parklands, with grass and trees growing on the edge of the startling white sand of a dry riverbed. And then, without warning, a cutting in the range of hills appeared no more than a hundred metres wide, through which the dry riverbed passed. The road and a railway line clung to one edge of the cutting, which a sign told him was Heavy Tree Gap. As he drove through the gap, the brilliant redness of the hills and startling whiteness of the sand were contrastingly blinding in the late afternoon sun. He'd headed this way to find his family, and the history haunted him. At times it made him feel ill, and at times it caused him to blink and wipe his eyes. 2. A month before, he'd pulled into the car park of the block of flats in Elizabeth, where he, Sharon and their kids, Sammy, aged eight, and Nina, who was six, lived. It was well after 8pm, because he'd stopped on the way home from work as a brickie to have a couple of beers with his mates. So, you got another leave pass, Mick, Dougie had stated as Mick had bought a third round of drinks. Nah, but I'm thirsty, mate. And anyway, Sharon knows what I'm doing. It's not as if I'm trying to shag some tart. I'm just having a beer with you blokes. Yeah, but we're single or divorced, eh, Ram? Dougie had grinned at one of the blokes who'd raised his glass as if to toast the comment. You're the only one with marital duties, Mick. But as I recall it, you've been stopping for the one or six each day after work for six weeks now. And each night you seem to stay just a little bit longer. Sharon must be a very understanding missus. Did I hire you as my keeper or marriage guidance counsellor, Dougie? Dougie had been partly right and partly wrong. Yes, stopping for beers with his workmates had been going on for six weeks now, and each time the length of Mick's stay had increased a little. While he knew it made Sharon shitty, he felt he deserved to unwind after an eleven-hour day. And no, Sharon wasn't an understanding missus. She'd seemed to be when he first married her, and then during his time fencing up north and out west on the Air Peninsula. But since he'd come back to Adelaide to work as a brickie again, she'd become sort of distant and withdrawn. He'd even wondered whether it had to do with her having to give up nursing training when she fell pregnant with Sammy. But he didn't ask. And she'd had a shot at him recently when he didn't get in until nearly 8.30pm. Jesus, Mick, what are you doing? I've had all day at the IGA stacking while Naomi babysits for us. I get in and have to clean the unit, cook tea, bath the kids and get them to bed, and you sit around with your mates drinking piss. I thought when you came back after the time fencing you'd be more committed to the kids, but I was wrong. You're only just in time to say goodnight to them, and you're gone again at six o'clock before they wake up. Give me a break, Shaz, he'd replied quietly, placing his bag in the cupboard inside the front door. I've been working six days a week, eleven hours a day for the past six weeks, and I spend all Sunday with the kids. With my overtime pay, you should be happy, instead of crapping on me for coming in late sometimes. Sometimes, she'd spat. Jesus, it's every fucking night, Mick. What about me? 
Don't I deserve some company? Then she was gone, slamming the bedroom door and leaving him alone and feeling very remorseful. The flat had two bedrooms, a kitchen-come-living area and a toilet-bathroom. Washing machines were on the ground floor, if they were working, and if not, Sharon had to go to the local laundromat. He'd met her after a football match that he'd played in between Centrals and Norwood. She'd taken his attention immediately. She was gorgeous, slender, with long dark hair and a smile that would win any heart. Mick had played top-grade Australian rules football in Adelaide with Central Districts since he was 17, starting in 2004. He'd lived all his life in Elizabeth and, when first selected with Central's league team, already had the build of a man. He was always referred to as that big, blonde, good-looking bugger. Sharon was from New South Wales and had come to Adelaide a couple of months before they met, when she was 18 and he was 21. I just got bored, she told him coyly the first night they'd met. I told my folks I was going travelling with Amy. We did, and ended up here in Adelaide, after about six months. Why did Adelaide appeal? he'd asked, knowing the place so well. It was better than Broken Hill, she'd giggled. I reckon every man who looked at me in that place was thinking about giving me one. He'd known exactly what she meant, because it was what he'd been thinking too. What do you do for a crust? I started nursing training at Flinders University about three months ago, and I work in an IGA a couple of days a week to make ends meet. They went together for nearly a year before she announced she was pregnant with Sammy, just after she'd returned from New South Wales to attend the funeral of her parents, killed in a car crash in the Blue Mountains. And as his mum had died just after he'd met Sharon, sorrow seemed to unite them. He had no other family. His dad had been electrocuted before he was born. There were no other brothers or sisters, and his dad's and mum's parents were dead. Sharon's father had no family she knew of, and her mother's family, from Queensland, were members of a radical religious sect and had disowned her when she fell pregnant with Sammy. So they'd married in 2008, the year Mick gave up playing football with Centrals at the ripe old age of 22. One reason was a downturn in the building industry, which saw him laid off as a brickie, so he'd had to go to the country to find other work. Another was because football bored him, the training, the non-drinking regime, and because he'd felt, without knowing why, there must be more to life than playing football and laying bricks. His retirement from football would have shattered his mum had she lived to see it. He was glad she didn't, even though her death in 2007 rocked him beyond anything he'd ever known. Despite the hardship of their lives, she'd worked her ass off to provide for him, six days a week in the local grocery store, to make sure he had football boots, tennis rackets, cricket bats or whatever else he'd needed. She'd been mother, father, guide, mentor and mate. When the football regime of no grog was in force, she'd often go to the local bottle shop, buy a six-pack of West End, and they'd quaff beers until bedtime. And when she'd had a few, she'd tell him, You're so like your dad, Mick. Tall, unruly, blonde hair. You're built like a brick shithouse, and you're a real good-looking bugger. But just make sure the one you decide is your woman for life is like me and will love you forever. He never struggled for female company. Like all high-profile footballers, particularly tall, tanned, blonde ones, he'd found females ever willing and ready to bed down with him. Who was she? His mother would sniff after he'd returned from escorting another willing accomplice home after an evening in his bedroom. 
That was Julie, he'd tell her. I introduced you to her when we came in. Well, that shows the impact she had on me, she'd retort. His mother never really knew Sharon. Her heart attack had happened just after Mick met her. His mum lingered for a month in hospital, and he'd supported her as best he could, and then she was gone. Maybe that's why he'd turned to Sharon, and she'd turned to him. Neither of them had anyone else. When the downturn in the building trade came, he'd gone fencing, often up north to places like Wilmington and Quorn, or out near Cleve and Lock on the Air Peninsula. It meant he was away for a couple of weeks at a time, returning as much as he could to see Sharon and Sammy. And, while he was fencing, Nina arrived. It was like he'd lived two lives. One was work and the other was family, and in truth he loved both. There was the freedom of the fencing work, because when the day's work was over, he'd drive with the team to Wilmington, Quorn or Cleve, have a few beers and a decent feed, and be able to unwind. But he also loved seeing the kids, and was devoted to them when he was home. He'd so willingly take them to parks and places that didn't cost money, and revel in his time with them. But late in the fencing period, he'd begun to sense a change in Sharon's attitude to him. And when he'd come back to live in Adelaide and started as a brickie again, it had changed even more. He'd spend as much time with the kids as he could, following the same ritual as he had when fencing, but Sharon had become increasingly distant. He'd come in from work, she'd toss the responsibility of the kids to him and go and sit on the floor of the unit and watch the latest talent show or never-ending soap opera. And while he didn't resent the responsibility, he'd begun to resent Sharon's attitude to him, including, over the past few months, resistance to having sex with him. That night, after drinks with Dougie and Ram, he'd trudged the stairs to the third floor and unlocked the front door of the flat. It had been in darkness, so he'd switched on the light and placed his bag of tools inside the cupboard. It wasn't unusual for Sharon to go out at night, but when she did, Naomi, the fifteen-year-old from two doors down, usually babysat. Tonight, however, there was no one. He'd walked towards the stove, thinking that maybe she'd taken the children to Ainsley's place, rather than spend money on Naomi. But at least, maybe, she'd have left him a meal. There was nothing on the stove. He looked around and tiptoed to the bedrooms and switched on the lights, expecting the children to be hiding so they could surprise him. There was nothing there. Beds had been stripped and the wardrobe and chest of drawers where the kids' clothes were always kept were wide open. He'd spun and gone to the main bedroom. Again, the cupboard doors were open and only his clothes remained. He'd gone still, staring into space for a while, before suddenly turning, leaving by the front door and running down the passage to where Naomi lived. After banging on the door and getting no immediate response, he'd hammered again. The door had opened. Naomi, a dumpy, red-headed teenager, looked surprised. Hello, Mr. Wilson. Naomi, do you know where Shaz, uh, Mrs. Wilson, is? Did she tell you anything today? Oh, is it, Nye? It was a woman's voice with a strident Australian accent. It's Mr. Wilson, Naomi had called over her shoulder. A couple of moments later, a dumpy, red-haired older woman, Naomi's mother, appeared. Mick? she'd asked inquisitively as she walked to the door. Sheila, do you know where Shaz is? Mick was agitated. The woman touched Naomi on the shoulder and flicked her head. Naomi smiled shyly at Mick before heading back into the flat. Come into the corridor, Mick, Sheila had said less stridently as she'd closed the door to the flat and led him to the area she'd suggested, 
She looked down for a while before saying in a motherly tone, "'I saw her this morning at eight o'clock. "'I'd washed some stuff by hand "'and I went onto my balcony to hang it out. "'Sheila, where is she?' "'Mick had become more agitated. "'She's not in the flat. "'The kids aren't there either, "'and all their clothes are gone. "'I just got in from work. "'What's going on?' "'Sheila sighed softly "'and looked over Mick's shoulder down the passage. "'Do you know, Andy, "'from Unit 225 downstairs?' "'She'd asked wistfully. Do you mean the truckie? Yes. Oh, sort of. Enough to say good day to, but I don't know him. I reckon Sharon knows him a lot better than you do. Sheila spoke sadly. What? What are you talking about, Sheila? What in the name of Christ is going on? Sheila had rubbed the palms of her hands together. Like I said, I was on the balcony about eight this morning and I saw Sharon and the two kids, all carrying cases, get into Andy's car. He helped them load stuff in the boot. Sammy was, well, he was upset, crying, and didn't want to get in the car, but Sharon made him. What? Why did she... What game is she playing? Mick, I'm not a nosy neighbour. I don't check what people in these flats get up to but often in the last few months as I've been going to the shops or down to do my washing, I've seen Andy coming and going from your flat during the day when the kids are at school. She'd stopped and looked sadly at Mick. You mean you're telling me that she... she was having it off with Andy? I don't know what she was doing with him in your flat, Mick, but I reckon, after what I saw today, she's taken the kids and buggered off with him. And Mick... I'm so sorry for you, if that's the case. Mick had stood staring at her for a long time before he turned and walked back to the flat. He closed the door and leaned against it, gazing across the quiet dining area. All he could think of was to go to the police. 3. He'd driven his combi into the Elizabeth Police Station parking area just before 10pm. What's this man's uh, Andy's surname? the police constable had asked. I don't know, Mick had retorted, moving so the light reflecting from the sheen of the police front desk wasn't in his eyes. I'd have to find that out. Well, that'd be a help, the constable had grimaced. What trucking company does he work for? I don't know, Mick had stumbled. I just know he's a long-haul driver. He has a couple of weeks on the road, then a couple of weeks shagging my missus, and now he's got her and my kids to take off with him. You need to let your mob know about it, don't you? Do you know the make, model and license plate number of his car or truck? Mick had shaken his head. The constable had looked down and taken a deep breath. Mr Wilson, he'd managed patiently. I know you're upset and, from what you've told me, with good reason. But I can't put out a bulletin asking police in South Australia to be on the lookout for an unknown car or truck driven by a man named Andy with a woman and two kids in it. Well, you've got to do something. You must have ways in 2017 of tracking people. Don't just stand there and tell me you feel sorry for me. The constable had taken another deep breath. What time did your wife and Andy leave? My neighbour said about eight this morning. Mr Wilson, there are many main roads out of Adelaide that a driver could take. To Perth, Alice Springs, Melbourne and Sydney, 
as well as other less important roads. We don't know his surname, his trucking company or the number plate of his vehicle, so all we've got is his first name. He could be halfway to Perth or Alice, be just about in Sydney, or if he headed for Melbourne, he'd be well and truly there. Fuck! Mick had placed his hands on the front desk and had looked down. Mr Wilson, see what you can find out about this Andy guy, even if it's just his surname and the trucking company he works for. That may give us a chance to track him. And even then, I'm not sure we can do much except to ask your wife to get in touch with you about the kids. After that, it's up to the courts, not us. As far as I understand it, no crime's been committed yet. So really, there's nothing we can do. Maybe he made them go with him. The constable's eyes narrowed slightly. Do you mean he forced your wife and kids to go with him? I, well, yeah, maybe. So you keep that in mind, Mick had concluded. Then he turned and walked from the police station into the cool night air. His mother came to mind. He'd wanted her to hug him and make him feel better. On reaching the combi, he'd shuddered and his eyes had flooded. He'd tried to control his emotions and had taken deep breaths. It hadn't worked. Leaning against the driver's door, he rested his arms on the roof of the old van for a long time, staring wetly into the night. 4. It was Friday night, and the main bar in the tavern in Alice Springs was filled. Over half of the crowd were Aboriginal people. The noise was extreme, music blaring from a DVD player, chimes, tunes and rattles from poker machines, and very loud voices, indicating a high degree of inebriation. Mick bought a schooner and went to the far end of the bar area, away from the crowd and noise, to where two pool tables were operating. He slid onto a stool and watched the pool games. He'd arrived in Alice about 4.30pm and had driven around to find somewhere to park the combi and sleep for the night. A thicket of trees on the road to a place called Ntaria, just outside the town limits, was fine, and after collecting wood for a fire later, he drove back into Alice. His height and looks made him noticeable. He was like a huge surfy. The height had stood him in good stead as a ruckman come centre-half forward for central districts. As a kid, he'd had dreams of being picked up in the AFL draft, but when the time came, he didn't go for it. He just kept playing for centrals. His mother had been stunned by the decision and did everything in her power to change his mind. I don't believe it, Michael, she'd said vehemently when he told her he wasn't going in the draft. But I, I don't want to go and live in Brisbane or Perth. Well, maybe you'll get picked up by Adelaide or Port Power. He'd shaken his head. I doubt it. They've had less interest in me than the Lions and the Dockers. Don't be ridiculous, she'd snapped in frustration. No, I'll keep playing with centrals and see what happens. The debate had raged until the closing date for draft nominations had passed. And for the first, and what was to be the only time in his life, he hadn't obeyed his mother. Despite subsequent approaches from several AFL clubs, he decided he didn't have the will or mental strength to play at the next level. A couple of mates who'd been picked up in the draft told of even more rigour, rules and much higher expectations than he'd ever had at Central's. Besides genuinely not wanting to shift to another city, Mick also knew he'd never have the level of dedication of his two mates. At most, he was a gentle giant, who, unless roused by an unfair action from an opponent, 
was content to give his best, but not the 102% AFL coaches seemed to demand. So, giving it away wasn't the wrench that some people believed. He'd had enough of training and the rules and requirements that went with playing with centrals in the South Australian League, including no drinking during the football season and having to sneak away behind the dunnies to have a smoke. He'd always been destined to play football at the top level. As a kid, he'd dominated in any sport he tried, because, as well as his height and weight, his hand-eye coordination, speed and flexibility were outstanding. He could just as easily have taken up playing basketball at the highest level. The Adelaide 36ers were very interested in him. "'You're so like your dad,' his mother would often say after a football game in which he'd starred. The only photo was the wedding one on the old sideboard, but that was enough to bear out the accuracy of her physical description. He'd sipped his beer as a big Aboriginal man lined up a shot against a short, drunk white man. It was the Aboriginal man's pool table, taking on all comers at $20 a game. Around the table, a large group of Aboriginal people provided vociferous support for the big man. One told him, Whack this cardia, Charlie. You keep this table, eh, and win big mob. Despite the support, the game was tight. Each player still had three balls on the table, and the black ball was in an easy position for potting. It was the white man's shot when he suddenly announced, Hang on, I got a piss. He placed his cue against the table and hurried towards the toilet. Charlie wandered close to the table on the other side from Mick, and with a barely discernible action, flicked the thick end of his cue against a ball on the table so it snookered the white man's next shot. It may have been an accident, but the deafness with which it was done made it unlikely. The white man returned, looked at the table and asked, Who shifted the balls? Nobody, and it been your shot, carrier. I wasn't snookered when I went for a piss, the white man complained. Maybe you'd do him when you put cue down. You pissed enough. Charlie grinned at his supporters. Yeah, I seen you do that, one supporter announced, his words accompanied by nods from colleagues. That's bullshit, the man replied stridently. You blackfellas are sticking up for him. You play or we take you out back and beat shit out of you, Charlie snapped angrily. You're right, mate, Mick called loudly to the white man to get above the noise. It's bullshit. You didn't move the ball. Voices went quiet, and eyes fell on Mick. Charlie flicked his head in Mick's direction, and a much bigger black man moved menacingly from the support group around the table towards Mick, taking a spare pool cue and brandishing it. You fuck off, Cardia. This not been business for you. Charlie yelled at Mick, but remained on his side of the pool table. By now, the poker machines had gone silent as people turned to see what was happening. Only the DVD player and noise from the other end of the bar were audible. Mick put his beer on the bar and stood. His size caused the bigger black man to stop. When someone's being ripped off, sunshine, it's my business, Mick told Charlie. You moved the ball. I don't know if it was an accident or you did it deliberately, but you moved it. Silence became comprehensive. The DVD player went quiet, and almost everyone in the tavern was watching to see what unfolded. Charlie stared at Mick for a long time before he suddenly said softly, Do him, Arnold. Arnold slid his hands to one end of the pool cue and, without warning, swung it at Mick's head. 
The haste of the action caused him to overbalance and stumble slightly, allowing Mick to duck and encompass him, pinning his arms to his body. The man's recovery was rapid. He knew the rules of barroom brawling. A knee to Mick's groin enabled an escape from the bear hug, and Arnold stepped back enough to swing the cue again. Mick, still recovering from a knee to the groin, was immobile, and the cue thudded against his head. He raised his hand and felt stickiness near his temple. The knee and the groin had pained him, but the cue to the head just made him very angry. He straightened, shook his head, blonde hair waving and traces of blood scattering, gave a low growl and went straight at his assailant. Arnold panicked and swung the cue again, but as it closed on Mick, he grabbed it and ripped it from the man's grasp. He whirled it above his head twice, causing the support group to scatter with shouts of Puck! Pucking hell! Then the cue found a mark against the black man's shoulder. Cuddy, I've been hit me! Arnold squealed as he crumpled dramatically to the ground. Cuddy, I've been whack me! Stop that fellow one! Him been crazy one! Mick simply stood staring down at him, blood dripping onto the floor. Come get this Cardia, him been crazy one! Charlie yelled. Two large bouncers, both Maoris, ran through the crowded bar and went for Mick, one ripping the cue from his hands and the other pinning him from behind. Call the cops, one yelled to a barman. Tell them to get here quick, we got a brawl. As Arnold dramatically clawed up from the floor, whimpering and holding his shoulder, his support group moved towards the bouncers and Mick. Another even bigger Maori appeared from nowhere, standing between the support group and his bouncer mates. Don't! was all he said. The approaching support group stopped and looked anywhere but at Mick. The cardio who'd been playing pool against Charlie suddenly called out, It's not the big bugger's fault. It was Charlie and Arnold. They started it. 